Great God, you do reign above. And Lord, it's not that we question that, but we often struggle with the realities of what that means in our own lives. We look around and we see humanity, and we see how many times our own weaknesses fights against that. And just as the author talks about your word that draws our hearts, it is your word that begins to display your great glory. Lord, it drives us to either fearing you in reverential awe, or it drives us to hardness of heart. And Father, we've struggled this week in our Christlessness to love as we should love, to care as we should care, to confess as we should confess. And it's been a battle in our own hearts. And I pray, Father, that today that we would look to you as the God of great joy, as the God who provided for us that which we needed most, and that is we needed perfect righteousness. The God who planned for all contingencies in order that people like us would be made anew, would be born again, would be given new life. Our hearts would be transformed, thus causing us to, to fight through any difficulty, to work through human relationships, and to give ourselves in such a way that we would love you in a greater way because of your kindness towards us. Father, as we study the Word of God today, would you be our God? And would you take the Word of God and drive it home to our hearts that we may know you and give our hearts to you? And we ask these things in the Spirit because of the work of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. I want to remind you, um, this today at 4 o'clock, we are planning to meet again to... Um, take apart the message that I'm going to speak now. This is part of the process that I'm going through. I've asked several folks to sit in and answer questions, um, specific questions that I've given to them on this Malachi book as we study through it. Uh, And so today at four, you're welcome to come and sit in on that. Um, If you've never seen a a message um, critiqued, this might be a new opportunity for you to join in on that. I actually had never been in a part of that, but last week was our first one and enjoyed it and learned much from it. And so you're welcome to come and sit in on that. Um, you don't have to have the questions. You can just sit and watch and learn and listen. Um, we would welcome you there. That's today at 4 o'clock right here. God's distinctive love. Will you join me in, in Malachi? book of Malachi. If you wonder where that is, just go to the book of Matthew and hang a left. All right, We're right there. That last book of the Old Testament. Um, I believe it's page 801 uh, if you have an ESV study Bible or ESV Bible. God's distinctive love. Now, I need to let you know ahead of time this morning, you'll need to stick right with me. So just, there's a lot of information that I want to give to you. We'll be jumping back into the Old Testament quite a bit. And if you would, when, when, when I say turn there, turn there, because I want you to see this. It's so important that you hear what is going on as Malachi is preaching his first message. All right? That's what we're here for this morning. Read with me, starting in verse 1. We'll go through verse 5. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build... But I will tear down, 
and they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this. And you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. These are God's words. May we be careful in how we hear. So let me ask you a question as we get started this morning. Do you ever argue with songs on the radio? Do you ever listen to a song and go, Wait, wait, really? Um, I do, frequently. I find myself arguing. Uh, the singer Nat King Cole dates me, all right? doesn't even really date me, it's before me, all right? But in 1948, he launched his career with then a very popular song named Nature Boy. I know that many of you have never heard this. Cindy had never heard this, although she had heard it a number of times. But she didn't, she didn't know it, all right? It's a very simple song, yet it is thought of as very profound. It reached the top of the charts for eight weeks straight. It is still a song often played and has been since recorded by many of today's artists. And it has two stanzas. Very simply, it says this. There was a boy, a very strange, enchanted boy. They say he wandered very far, very far over land and sea. A little shy and sad of eye, but very wise was he. And then one day, a magic day, he passed my way. And while he spoke of many things, fools and kings, this, he said, he said to me, the greatest thing you'll ever learn is just to love and be loved in return. That's the end. And every time I hear this song, I argue with it. Now, from a very purely earthly perspective, there's some truth to this. I mean, it's very sentimental. It's an emotional statement that probably we can all relate to in one fashion or another. However, in Scripture, we find that there is an even greater thing that we can learn and should learn. The greatest thing we can ever learn is that we are loved even before we have ever loved in return. And that's a huge difference. And this is the theme of Malachi's first message. And it permeates the entire 55 verses. He says this, I have loved you, says the Lord. And without any introduction, without any small talk, without any announcements, without any pastoral prayer, without any hymn singing or scripture reading, Malachi preaches God's declaration, I have loved you. The Hebrew verb to love is used 32 times of God's love in the Old Testament. And 23 of those times are cases of which he is loving Israel or he is loving particular Jewish individuals. This was no new declaration to them. This should not have been a surprise to Israel and neither did it come out of nowhere to them. These words and all of their direct, straightforward bluntness set the tone really for everything that will come next. It is that same love that we read about in the Apostle John's book in chapter 3, verse 16. And he called it, God so loved. God so loved. It is truly a distinctive love. It is a one-way love that he pours out on his people. Now let me ask you a question this morning. Would you like to hear this morning of this kind of love and what did it look like for these people? Yes, you would. Turn to Ezekiel this morning. Ezekiel 16. I was hoping you would say yes. Ezekiel 16. That's on page 702. Ezekiel 16. And I want us to read verses 3 through 14. But I want you to just listen. The kind of love that God set on these people. Son of man, oh sorry, verse 2. Son of man, make known to Jerusalem her abominations and say, Thus says the Lord God to Jerusalem. Your origin and your birth are the land of Canaanites, your father. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. As for your birth on the day that you were born, your cord was not cut. 
nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling clothes. No eye pitied you to do anything of these things to you out of compassion for you, but you were cast out in the open field, for you were abhorred on the day that you were born. And when I passed by you and saw you wallowing in your blood, I said to you in your blood, in your blood, live. I said to you in your blood, live. I made you flourish like a plant of the field, and you grew up and became tall, arrived at full adornment. Your breasts were formed and your hair had grown, yet you were naked and bare. And when I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love, and I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God. And you became mine. Then I bathed you with water and washed off your blood from you and anointed you with oil. I clothed you also with embroidered cloth and shod you with fine leather. I wrapped you in fine linen and covered you with silk. And I adorned you with ornaments and put bracelets on your wrist and a chain on your neck. And I put a ring on your nose and earrings in your ears and beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver and your clothing was of fine linen and silk and embroidered cloth. You ate fine flour and honey and oil. You grew exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty. And your renown went forth among the nations because of your beauty. For it was perfect through the splendor that I had bestowed on you, declares the Lord. That's unbelievable love that God shed on these people. The very basis of our Bible, all the stories and all the events, the people and circumstances speak of this kind of love. And they speak one remarkable truth about this love, and that is this. The steadfast covenant love of God is the foundation for all of life for every believer. And this love is a distinctive love, a one-of-a-kind love that is unique to the one true God. And it is now Malachi's opportunity to put in place through his first message this distinctive love of God that demands that his people would treasure God's love, would fear God's love, and worship only God. May we hear this message this morning. Notice first of all, God's people should treasure God's love. Look at verse 2 with me again. I have loved you, says Yahweh. So much had happened to these people because of their own strange and fickle love for God. I mean, a remnant of God's people had turned, returned back to Jerusalem, and they began to rebuild the city, their homes, and most importantly, the temple, the dwelling place of God, the place of worship. And it was one remarkable story of love, care, mercy, and grace that God had poured out on them. And let's take a moment, if you would, and let's go back in a time just a little bit and explore this amazing love and how God had time after time poured it out all over them. Turn, if you would, to Nehemiah. I told you we'd be, we would be turning a little bit more than usual. Go to Nehemiah chapter 1 this morning. Nehemiah chapter 1. And we're going to quickly go through this book, so hang on. Look at Nehemiah chapter 1 in verse 2. Well, we'll begin in verse 1. Now the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the capital, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived this exile in great trouble and shame, the wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. Nehemiah comes and he hears this tale of utter destruction of Jerusalem that they knew existed, but they had gone to see it, and now these guys were telling him. 
Look with me in verses 4 through 11. And as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven, and I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps the covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayers of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of your people, Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, there, from there I will gather them and bring them to that place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. Oh, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of God. What a powerful passage. He secures this permission from King Artaxerxes. And he wants to go and he wants to rebuild those walls. And so he goes in chapter 2, verse 17. Look quickly with me on that. He says, Then I said to them, You see the trouble we're now in. Now Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. He gains opportunity. And he says, Come on, let's go. Now look at verse 18. And the people say, And I told them that the hand of my God there has been upon me for good and also the words that the king had spoken to me and they said let us rise up and build so they strengthened their hands for the good of the work so they strengthened their hands for the good of the work and they go to work and what we read about in chapters 3 4 and 5 things got very difficult as they began to build these walls i read it through this week and it was amazing the stuff that they went through the enemies of the people of God began to pour out all kinds of opposition because they did not want the people of God to regain strength. Turn over to, with me to chapter 6. Chapter 6, threats became very personal towards Nehemiah. And look at verse 15. Chapter 6, verse 15. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elul in 52 days. You can see God's hand is with them. And they're building, rebuilding. But then look at verse 16. Chapter 6, verse 16. And when all our enemies heard it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. The fear of God is beginning to come back into the land as these men stuck it out and persevered to build the wall. Now look over, if you would, at chapter 8, verse 1. And here's what's happened. While the walls would be built physically and give them physical security, here's where they got their spiritual security. Look at verse 1. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. Now look what happened. Look down in verse 5. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people. For he was above all the people as he opened it. All the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord and their faces to the ground. They were broken by the experience that God had showed and just brought them through. And as they began to build it, they began to receive strength. And in chapter 9, we read confessions concerning all that God had done. Look at chapter 9, verse 1. Now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and sackcloth and with earth on their heads, and the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and they read from the book of the law of the Lord 
to their God for a quarter of the day. For another quarter, they made confession and worshiped the Lord their God. You see this beautiful confession that they made before God. Now look down in verse 16. But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. And they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return their slavery in Egypt. But notice this, that you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. And you did not forsake them. You see what's going on here? God in his loving kindness over and over and over. And notice this, abounding in steadfast love. Look down to verse 31. You see this again. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them. For you are a gracious God and a merciful God. Now therefore, O God, the great, the mighty, the awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let all the hardships seem little to you that he has come upon us, upon our kings and our princesses and our priests and our prophets and our fathers and all your people since that time of the kings of Assyria until this day. And you hear this beautiful picture. And they're coming back as God's people and they're saying, God, you are the God of love. You are the God who's cared for us. You've kept your covenant with us, abounding in steadfast love. Awesome God who keeps this kind of love. Now turn again to to Malachi chapter 1. God comes to them not 100 years later, not 50 years later, not 30 and not 20 years later, But approximately, as best as I can tell, it was one decade later. And the first words out of God's mouth is, I have loved you. Over ten short years, they had become insensitive to God's grace and mercy and no longer cherished God's love. They knew God's love. They had recited it. They had praised it. But their hearts had grown bitterly cold. So this is where God starts. He starts right here. And he reminds them, I have loved you. Now buckle your seatbelt. Because we're going to talk about what is God saying about this love. First of all, I want you to see it's an initiated love. I have loved you, says Yahweh. This is the same Yahweh that stepped out into nothing and created the world and spoke, let there be light. And his sovereign power initiated light through speaking it into existence. And now he sovereignly initiates this relational love to them and he speaks yet again. This is the creator God speaking of his very love and he has in his divine choice set his love on these people, Israel. Deuteronomy 7, don't turn, but I put it up here so you can read it together with me. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who were on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people in the Lord, because the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewer, the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. God makes it very clear. God is the great initiator, and he initiates his sovereign electing love, and it is poured out out of his very character of being a character of love, and he sets his love on them, and he initiates his love toward them right in the middle of their nothingness. And so it's love. It's a love that is one way. It is love that comes initiating from God even while they were yet sinners. And this is a foundational truth for all of us to understand this morning. God does all things for his purposes, and not one of his purposes will ever fail. 
Paul tells us all of this was put under God's rule from the very beginning, from literally before the foundations of the world, Ephesians 1.4 says. This was God's plan. It is God's own way of speaking to his people that he alone is God and he is the great initiator. And because of that, God is the one who directs all things. He calls the shots. And mankind has wrestled with this truth more than perhaps anything else about the very character of God because it reflects back to us the fact that we are not God. And we don't get to call the shots. R.C. Sproul said this, Most Christians salute the sovereignty of God, but believe in the sovereignty of man. All of life is truly about God, and his initiating one directional love makes it clear. It's an initiated love. Notice secondly, it's a sustained love. The way the Hebrew reads in Malachi here is is in this choice sentence, I have loved you, is the idea, I have loved you and I continue to love you. I continue day in and day out, day in and day out. And if you go back and read the text that I've given to you, you see this over and over and over, and they admit it. You loved us, we turned our back. You loved us, we turned our back. You loved us, and we turned our back. He not only initiates his love, but he sovereignly pours it out over and over and over and over on them. You see, my friend, it's not a fickle or a vacillating love that he gives. It's a sustained, enduring love, but they ignore it. They reject it. They spurn it. They rebel against it. And God lovingly spreads his garments of mercy on them over and over and over and covers them in their worst condition. That's stunning. It's a sustained love. But thirdly, it's a personal love. Notice God uses these pronouns, I and you. I have loved you. Listen to Moses' amazement in God's personal love in Deuteronomy 10, verses 14 and 15. I give this to you as well. Behold, the heaven and the heaven of heavens is the Lord's thy God. The earth also and all that there is. What is he doing? He's stating that God is God. Only Yahweh had a delight in thy fathers to love them, and he chose their seed after them, even you above all people. God personally reached down from heaven and set his love on these people. Right about now, our normal question when we hear these words is, why does God set his love on some and not others? That's the wrong question. The question ought to be, why does God set his love on anybody? No one deserves this kind of love. This is a, the one-way love of God as he pours it out upon people like you and like me. And here, God shows us that while his glory is at stake and his purposes will stand, he is tender and compassionate in a personal way to those people who needed to be changed by him. And there's a real sense we as God's people like Israel should be people who treasure and cherish and hold in great delight God's love on us. How easy it is for us to grow insensitive that God personally loves each of us in ways that meets our greatest and most personal needs. We just won't believe it fully. This is why we look for everything else. We look to find our own way. And we look to grab hold of life and wrench it in order that maybe it would come to terms like we want it to come to. Instead, God uses even our sin in very sinless ways in order to teach us his glory. And so this very fact that he comes to them again and says, I have loved you, opens the door very wide for the heart of gratitude, for a heart of amazement and wonder and awe in all of us. We should be sitting here this morning And when we sing, when morning gilds the skies, my heart awaking cries, may Jesus Christ be praised, because we don't deserve that kind of love. And God comes and he pours it out and he says, I have loved you. But notice secondly, 
The people of God should fear God's love. And here's where it gets dicey, as it were. Look at the last part of verse 2. How have you loved us? It was guttural. It was knee-jerk. It was reactionary. God says, I've loved you. And you go like, what? You've loved us? You're kidding me. How have you loved us? And while it is God's intention that we treasure him and his love for us, it becomes very clear that these people and we lose any fear of God in our hearts. God isn't God. God doesn't mean what, he has, what he's saying. And they were insensitive to God's initiating love on them, and they also became insensitive to God's righteous judgment on them due to their sin. Their complete blindness shows up in this immediate knee-jerk reaction found in the last part of verse 2, or in the middle part of verse 2. How have you loved us? Can you, can you hear the pain in their hearts? The book that we were using for child-rearing said this, Quote, nothing stabs more bitterly at the soul than the feeling that God has abandoned you. You ever been there? It's probably not what they actually said verbally, perhaps. But it was apparent, apparently rampant in their hearts in the way they thought of God. I mean, how could they even think of such a thing when God had said it over and over and over? His steadfast, covenantal love. Let me ask you this this morning. How do you and I think of God's love? You see, we often gauge God's love for us by our circumstances, don't we? I mean, God's love toward them was never based on their circumstances. It was always based on His perfections and His characters and His word. It is who God is, and it is based on what God has told them. You see, we are people who were designed by God to listen to Him and believe Him and not lean on our own understanding. But their circumstances were pretty bleak right then. And so they respond, how have you loved us? There's no respect for God. The word how here is this idea, or wherein have you loved me? God, in what way have you loved me? And here, instead of listening, they were defensive and demanding of God. And they were looking up to God and say, God, you prove it. You have loved us. Prove it. And here's where the lack of fear, the lack of respect and honor showed up against God. Things aren't the way we anticipated, so God, you really aren't the God you say you are. So how does God answer this? Well, God takes them clear back to the beginning to remind them. He goes clear back to the beginning. And he says this in the last part of verse 2. He asks them a question. Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? And they would be going like, God, you know that. Of course he is. And then he says this. I have loved Jacob, but Esau... I have hated. God says this. God takes them back and he says, you should fear God because he is full of grace towards you. That's the point of this text. Was not Esau Jacob's brother? Well, what is grace? What is this grace? It is God's favor on the undeserved. Rebecca was Isaac's wife. And God had graciously, op graciously opened her womb and gave her twins. In Genesis 25, verse 23, we read about this. As she struggled within her own heart, Lord, what is going on inside of me? And God says to her, two nations are in your womb. Two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. Esau was born first, and Esau was the rightful heir. And yet God switches the order for his own purposes, and he makes Jacob the path of his blessing. And here's where we see one of the patterns or motifs that is literally woven into the fabric of Scripture. It is the pattern or the motif of blessing and cursing of God. 
And God takes them clear back to Genesis chapter 2, where God put man in the garden and he spoke to man these words. You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. And here's the kind blessing of God. Look at everything in this garden. It's all yours. Enjoy it. I've created it for you. That's the oracle of blessing. God blessing humanity. But then we find the very first clue of what we know now is the just curse of God. We don't like this part. But in chapter 2, verse 17, But of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for the day you eat of it you shall surely die. Obey, you'll live. Blessing. Disobey, you will die. Cursing. But it actually doesn't stop there. It isn't as if God says it one time and then comes, never comes back to it. Look, turn with me to the book of Deuteronomy. Turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 28. Deuteronomy is the second rendering of the law. It's the clarification of the law. And I want you to see that what God began with the blessing and curse motif, it goes all the way through Scripture. Notice, if you would, verse 28, beginning verse 2. And all of these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. Blessed shall you be in the city. Blessed shall you be in the field. Blessed shall you be in the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground and the fruit of your cattle, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall you be when you come in and blessed shall you be when you go out. Blessing, 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 blessing when you obey. Now shift with me down to verse 15. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God or be careful to do all His commandments and His statutes that I command you this day, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city. Cursed you shall be in the field. Cursed you should be in your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed should be your fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground and in the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. Cursed shall you be when you come in. Cursed shall you be when you go out. Cursed, cursed, cursed. this picture of magnificent love of God being poured out in God's kindness and grace upon these people. And nothing more sweetly restores hope than the reminder that God does love you. But here's what it begins to mean when God says, Jacob, have I loved? God's kind grace provided a rich opportunity to enjoy all these blessings. You obey the blessing of God, and the blessing of God will be upon you. We see this in Psalm 1. Blessed is the man that delights in the law of God, and what? He will be like the tree beside the still waters. And the ungodly, though, are not so. They'll be like chaff, which the wind drives away. Cursing. Later, Jesus comes and he begins preaching. And where does he begin? Blessed are the poor, for they will be filled Jesus, as the final and the greatest prophet, gives this oracle of wheel, as it were, the oracle of blessing. But God also called upon the prophets to bring the oracle of doom as well. And with Jesus, the oracle of doom was this word of woe. And so in Matthew chapter 11, he says, Woe, Chorazin and Bethsaida. Be warned. But also, woe, scribes and Pharisees in Matthew 23, 13. And incidentally, just so you know and understand this, for the Jew, for them to have God's blessing as always, is always tied to seeing God's face. Being in the presence of God, just like it was in the Garden of Eden. So Moses pleaded to see God's face. He wanted to see his glory in Exodus thirty-three eighteen, And God could not let him see it fully, but God allowed him to see the very backside of God. So in the Jewish benediction, they would recite this in Numbers chapter 6, verses 24 through 26. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you. The Lord lift his countenance upon you and give you peace. What is so important for us to understand in this is how the Jewish person understood this. 
for the Jew to be blessed by God is to be bathed in the refulgent glory that emanates from his face. May the Lord bless you to the Jew means to behold the face and the presence of God. And then I love it when John the Apostle writes what is, I think, the Mount Everest of this blessing in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. The highest pinnacle you could go when it comes to his blessing. And we read about this. He says, Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Why? Because we will see him as he is. My friend, this is all because of God's grace. Undeserved favor poured out upon humanity, the likes of us. Fear him. Fear this kind of love. And notice, secondly, you should fear God because of his just judgment. In verses 3 and 4, what we see unfold for us is something that makes us all uncomfortable. Esau, I have hated. And here's the example of this blessing and cursing motif brought side by side. Love, hate. Blessing, curse. And all of this flows from God's sovereign rule and love and his purposes. And it is here to be found now in God's hatred for Esau. It's important to note that all through Scripture, object that merits God's hate. In Isaiah chapter 1, verse 14, Your new moons and feasts I hate. The seven evils of Proverbs 6, 19 through, 16 through 19 like pride, lying, murder, evil imagination, and dissension among the brethren. And so often we say that God hates the sin, but he loves the sinner. But here we see that indeed God does hate even the sinner. So what is God talking about here? God said he would bless Jacob and not Esau. You see, my friend, it's the ultimate example that God does what he wants to do regardless of an individual and what they do. Paul picks up on this very important we understand. He actually quotes Malachi in Romans chapter 9, verse 12. He speaks of this very issue. That God purposely reverses the order of birth for Jacob and Esau. And in verse 14 of Romans 9, he says this, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So that it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. You see, my friend, it's all about God and his divine character and holy nature. But what I want you to notice here in Malachi, in chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, you begin to see what is the tension of God's sovereign will and man's responsibility. In verse 3, it says that God had left Esau, his hill country, as inheritance. Do you see this? It's rather kind of hidden. Look at verse 3. But Esau I have hated, I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. You see, now it moves beyond God's electing purposes and we get a view of Esau's own determined rebellion that existed for all to see. We want to look at God and, and point to God and say, God, you're unjust. And what Paul is saying is, God is not unjust. Why? Because man is filled with his own rebellion. And this is the point that God speaks to these people in Malachi. God had promised to Israel's obedience to bless them to the thousandth generation, the ones that would obey him and worship him. But there was also this dark side to visit the sins and the faithful, faithlessness of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate God. Read about it in, in, in Ezekiel, or excuse me, Exodus chapter 20, verse 5. Esau left God's land of inheritance and went to live outside of God's provision to the land is called the land of Seir. And you read about this in Genesis 32, verse 3. It's the land south of the Dead Sea. 
And it was there later that Edom refused to even let Israel go through their land on their way to the promised land in Numbers 20. Israel and Edom was constantly bickering and fighting between them back and forth in both David's rule and in Solomon's reign. And in 586 B.C., when Israel was destroyed, Edom joined in the destruction of Jerusalem. So thus, God says their land and their people as a nation will be laid to desolation, verse 4. But notice Edom's persistent rebellion. God, you may shatter us, but we'll rebuild. You can't stop us. God. You see that in verse 4? They may build, God says, but I will tear down. God gets the final word. They will be called the wicked country, the people with whom God is angry forever because of their sin. They stiffen their neck, and instead of hearing this as a warning, they actually harden their hearts and notice that God will have the final say. If you look at that part of the country or that part of our world on a map today, you will find Israel. But if you look for the country of Edom, it's not there. Why? Because they're gone. They're not a nation. Because God is God. Fear Him. Listen to Him. And then finally, I want you to see in verse 5, God's people should worship God. We'll go quickly. Here's the great evidence of God's distinctive love. This is beautiful. Do you see this? He looks, God looks through, through Malachi. Malachi looks at those people and says, your eyes shall see this. You'll see this. You'll see what I'm talking about. See what? That God's eternal plan of bringing redemption, not just to Israel, but it will extend beyond the borders. Do you see the verse 5? Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. Oh, my friend, this should cause a little stirring of your heart to go, Wow. For the Jew, what was beyond the borders of Israel? Gentiles. Gentiles. That's you and me. God's love and its graciousness and in its judgment exceeded Israel nationally, it exceeded Israel politically, and now geographically and culturally to beyond them now to the Gentile world. In Genesis 12, God told Abraham that in his seed all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And this blessing, Paul, the apostle, calls good news or the gospel in Galatians 3.8. Listen to this. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you all the nations will be blessed. And you know what God has said there? I'm not a regional deity. I'm not the God of just one little space. I am the God of this world, and there are no borders that I do not claim as mine. I rule the world. My friend, do you remember the Christmas hymn, Joy to the World? No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow, far as the curse is found. That's you and me. That's to the uttermost Parts of where the curse has infiltrated every single part of our lives. He, Malachi, is giving the first point to Jesus. This should stir our hearts. And people may deny the love of God and their sin, but there's coming a day when the whole world will acknowledge His love as His blessings cover the fullest extent of the curse. The whole world is going to acknowledge that Yahweh is God, that Jesus is Lord. So today we worship God, and our eyes shall see God's word, and we will hear God's word and will be forever blessed. 
see, my friend, the greatest thing we can ever learn is that we are loved, even before we ever loved in return. This is truly God's distinctive love. We must treasure God's love. We must carefully and rightly fear only Him. And we must stand in His presence in reverential awe of Him, and we worship only. Let's remember this morning, God does not owe us one blessing. In every way in life, God is the great initiator. God has set his love on us, but it is not a love based on our present circumstance. It is based on God being God. Believe God's word. Trust him. Secondly, God's love and grace must serve as a warning to our hearts. Because you haven't experienced death yet, you have one more day to place your trust in him. Believe in him. Listen to him. Are we breathing? God is gracious. There is a God and he has loved you. Listen to him. Thirdly, God's love for us is our sure foundation for all of life. I have loved you, says Yahweh. His gracious love, which should drive us then to fear him purposefully and worship him heartily. This morning, do you see God? Do you step back and set aside your own understanding and open your hearts up to his great goodness that's purely because of his grace and mercy that he showered upon you. Know this God. Be loved by this God. Will you pray with me this morning? Great Father, we come this morning in utter, stunned amazement again as we sense the God of all creation, the one who stepped out and said, let there be light, He's the same one that comes to us over and over and over and says, I've loved you. I loved you. I have loved you. Forgive us, dear Father, for not trusting and believing. Lord, there may be some folks here this morning who are not genuinely born again. I pray that you would, in your kindness and in your grace, reach down through that hardened heart of stone and grant them a heart of flesh that they may believe. And for those of us that are here born again, Lord, would you show us once again, even if it's the backside of you, how holy and righteous you are and cause our hearts to relish each demonstration of your amazing love that you've set upon us. Cause our hearts to hear Father, we love you, and we praise you, 